This morning I'm going to continue to preach on that theme that I preached a few weeks ago on uh, Church on the Move, and uh, we're going to go into part two, but I just want to recap and just share a little bit about what I shared a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I started off by sharing the command of the gospel, the commission of, of, of Jesus, is to go and to take the good news to others, uh, and that's the thing that is required of us. I used the verse in Luke chapter 19, where Jesus said, the Son of Man uh, has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so our job is to go, to go. That's the requirement, to go. And I mean, I, I, as I was coming here this morning, I, I, I thought, you know, what happens with those folk that come into the church for the first time? I mean, they've graced us with their presence. And one of the most disturbing things is if I'm talking to a member and I see a new person there, and I'm thinking, Nobody's talking to them. Nobody, nobody is getting them. I mean, we should be like a bunch of piranhas saying, fresh, bottom fluffy, go to them and just overwhelm them with, with uh, friendliness and love and consideration and care. Go. Even if they come into our foyer, go. Don't let them stand around. Don't be so infatuated with talking to your friends. Go and share. Share the gospel with people. Then I went on to talk about vision and uh, Proverbs 29. Without a vision, the people perish. And the Josh Chen vision is just to be an authentic church. The first description of the early church was in verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, after the Spirit of God had fallen. And the first three verses, they devoted themselves, and we spoke a little bit, about that. They devoted uh, themselves. So today, so much of our uh, cajoling motivation kind of, come on guys, let's get going, comes from the top down. But here in the Bible, it came from grassroots. It came from within the people. They devoted themselves. That was the first three words that described the early church and probably is the last three words that describe the 21st century church. We are overwhelmed with consumerism. We are overwhelmed with looking at the church like a country club. I don't need to attend. I don't need to be a part of. We should make this an absolute priority. C.S. Lewis, I quoted him, and he said this, I, don't, I, I, I didn't go into religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want religion to make you, uh, make you feel really, really comfortable, I certainly would not choose Christianity. <laughs> I've never seen decreasing attendance result in increasing devotion. Ever. Never works that way. And then I went on and I spoke about uh, we need to be a church that experiences the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit. And often, often, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 12, they continued in amazement and in great perplexity. I think that we should be amazed at what God is doing. We should actually sit back and like look at what God is doing and just be in awe of what He's doing. I've seen stuff take place uh, at meetings, even in our own church, back when we were in the Presbyterian church. And I just stood there and I thought, how does this work? The manifestations that were taking place, 
the, the, the real heart-wrenching cries that were taking place. And, you know, Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2 says, Lord, I have heard of your fame, and I stand in awe of your deeds. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known. Wow. So the fourth one, we're getting into the sermon this morning, is we need to be a word-based church. We need to be a word-based church. The Bible, God's word, is a word that can have incredible power in our lives. Incredible power. You know, there's a fascinating passage uh, in uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Let's just have that up. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay? We, we need, how do you transform by the renewing of? By reading God's word. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Yes. God's will is contained in the scriptures. And as we read it and as our minds are renewed, we go from one to the other to the other. What his good and then his pleasing and then his perfect will is. And the only way to do that is by spending time in the Word. We think that we can be good Christians because we've had a salvation experience, because God's filled us with His Holy Spirit. But there is another aspect. We need to have the Word of God washing over us and filling us all the time. Jeremiah 23 and 29 says this, It's not my word. Is not my word like fire? Mm. Declares the Lord. Like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Sometimes we come to church with hardened hearts, come a little bit stubborn. And sometimes whoever's preaching, whether it's me or somebody else, it's like a hammer. Breaking that rock so that your heart becomes not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. And it's only the Bible that does that. See, the Bible to us in our spiritual lives is like nutritious food to the body. The Bible nourishes us. Spend time in your work. Don't, don't neglect the word of God on a daily basis even. In the cell, tomb, prison that Paul uh, spent his last days in Rome is a uh, inscription it says, the word of God is not bound. And that kind of lines up with one of his last letters to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, Timothy uh, gets a letter from Paul uh, to be a true servant of the gospel. And this is what it says. For which I have suffered even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. God's word, some translations say, is not bound. And God's word will go out and it has the ability to change. It has a hu- huge power in it. It has the ability to convict us of sin. We don't like in this modern culture to hear the word sin, but it's that thing that God wants to challenge all the time, to cleanse us, to wash us clean. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up after the Holy Spirit had fallen and he began to preach the word, 23 verses are contained in Acts chapter 2 of of Peter's sermon. 12 of those verses are pure scripture from the Old Testament. That's all that he did. Quoted scripture. 
And at the end of that sermon, the people said, Our hearts are stabbed, our hearts are pricked. What shall we do? And he said, Repent. Accept Jesus Christ. Be baptized. Be filled with the Spirit. But because he preached the word, their hearts were challenged. Their hearts were convicted. Sometimes we come to church thinking we've got it all together. And we sit under the word and, oh, God, you're doing something within me. Need to change. Need to change. And we need to apply the word. To take it and to do it. Just coming to church, listening to sermons via the internet, on your cell phone, smartphone today. It's not going to do it. We have to walk in it. There's a very scary verse in James chapter 1. In verse 22, Prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not just hearers. For those who think that hearing is enough deceive themselves. Whoa. The American Standard Version says something like this. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not just merely hearers who delude themselves. And then the Living Bible says, remember it's a message to obey, not just to listen to. So don't fool yourselves. James is speaking to those who go to church, who sit there as believers, who listen to the word, but then do nothing about it. They only listen, they only read the word, but we have to do it. We have to walk in it. Our, our listening, our understanding, our teachableness has to be translated into action. Action. And that's the only way that I think the church can be mobilized when there is sufficient support going on in terms of our action each and every single day. Henry Stanley, who was the guy that came to David Livingston in Africa, we, we all know what he said when he saw David Livingston, Dr. Livingston, I presume. He was, he was an atheist when he arrived there as a journalist. He wanted to journal and understand what this man, what this great man was all about. Within a few weeks and months, he changed. This is what he said about David Livingston. He made me a Christian and never knew that he was doing it. He went on to say, it was not Livingston's preaching that converted me, but Livingston's living. Is your religion a religion that works, really works? At the end of the day, we should ask ourselves, what have I done today that no one else except a Christian would do? In the 19th century, there was an agnostic. He was quite uh, vehement, aggressive. His name was Robert Ingersoll. And uh, he spoke out at every single turn against the Bible and against the church. And then he wrote a book towards the end of his life, slating the Bible. 
and he sent it to his aunt, who lived in another city on the opposite side of the United States. And he sent it to Aunt Sarah. And on the inside of the book he wrote, this is what he wrote, If all Christians lived like Aunt Sarah, perhaps this book would never have been written. Robert G. Ingersoll. If we live like Christians, man, God can do something spectacular in us. I have a statement here about the Bible. I'm going to read it. Listen carefully. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true, its decisions immutable. Read it wisely, believe it to be safe, and practice it in order to be holy and pure before God. It contains light to direct you, food to sustain you, comfort to lift and to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, it's the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Christ is its subject. Our good is its design. The glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, discipline the flesh, guide the feet, read it slowly, read it frequently, read it prayerfully. It has been given to you. It will be opened on the day of judgment, forever remembered. It involves the highest responsibility, rewards the greatest effort and labor, and condemns all who make light of its holy precepts. What a great statement. We have to make it a priority in our lives. The second thing I want to share with you today is to have stories of change, testimonies. That's what we're doing at the moment with testimonies that come to us. And testimonies about life transformation, stories of changed lives, changed lives in our marriages, changed lives in our salvation, changed lives in the addictions that have been conquered, changed lives in the sicknesses that have been healed. We need to share because it's those stories that real, really give us great motivation. I think we should capture them on tape, capture them even on film. And when we have fantastic testimonies, we should remind ourselves of those things over and over again. And one of the greatest testimonies, I want to talk about this now for a little bit, because I know that some of you haven't, is to be baptized. You need to go into the waters of baptism. If you haven't been baptized, I want to say to you, let's do it. Let's get involved with it. Baptism really says, I want, I'm, I'm going to have a new identity. And I'm going to be part of the family of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's my new identity. Because they live inside of me. I honor them. I'm following the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my new identity. And I'm, I'm saying no. And I'm saying to the end of my old life. And I'm saying something good and new to my future life. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5. Did we have that one? There is one body and one spirit, just as we all call to one hope. When you were called, one Lord, one faith, 
and one baptism. Baptism also is a sign that we live by faith. It's a sign that from today and on a daily basis, I'm going to acknowledge Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. That's the only way to live. And Jesus makes that requirement, gives us that requirement. Peter, when he had preached that message on the day of Pentecost, repent. Some of us have repented. And be baptized. Because in baptism, when the waters of baptism, I go down as a dead man. I go down and I'm raised to new life. My identity is forever changed. So, come and speak to me. Brian, Carl, after the service. If you've never been baptized, let's get on and do that incredible statement. Statement of faith. You see, not only do you say, I'm baptized with the folk around you. You say to the devil, who's always watching you, devil, today, I've got a new identity. You're not going to deal not only with us guys here at Somerset West, you're going to deal with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in future. So testimonies are good. Testimonies are important. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11 says this. They triumphed over him. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, look at that, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Testimonies are important. What do testimonies do? What did Metz and Janre and all the others that will give testimony, what does it do? It stirs up worship when we say, God is amazing. I mean, when Janre finished, I thought, God is good that he moved him. From Bloemfontein. <laughs> Sorry, guys, if you love Bloemfontein, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just kidding. It's got, a, it's a great city. I worked there for a while, but it's not as good as Stellenbosch and Somerset West. That's for sure. <laughs> so we, we, we left seeing the incredible faithfulness and the goodness of God. It can generate hope. Wow, that person has gone through, and God has blessed him. I'm going through the same thing. and I'm filled with hope as well. It can foster understanding. What I never knew what that person has gone through and how they overcame in that situation. And I'm filled with a sense of understanding for this situation as well. And they convict unbelievers. When the unbeliever is sitting there and they listen to a testimony, wow, it's incredible. I thought of, of David going to Saul when he was going out to fight Goliath. And uh, Saul says to him, why do you think you can feed, defeat the, the giant? And this, is, this is what David says to him. He says, once I killed a lion and a bear, I looked to the same God who gave me victory over the lion and the bear. And that same God will give me victory over this uncircumcised giant. I've, I've had testimony about what God has done in my life. I've had to fight a lion. And I've had to fight a bear. And uh, really, this giant is a piece of cake. He's a walk in the park. And the, the interesting thing about that story, and I love this part, is that when David killed Goliath with a stone, it was like a 
guided missile under the Spirit of God right to his forehead. He came, took Goliath's sword and cut off his head. He took it around as a trophy. See what God has done. L look at this. I mean, that's an incredible trophy. And then he takes all of Goliath's weaponry and takes it to his tent and sticks it in his tent. And every morning he wakes up when he's going to sleep, he sees, hey, there's giant's weapons. God, you're good. You're good as a trophy. In 1978, the uh, British fire services went on strike. And the British army was called in to help and to see that there was no tragedy that took place. And in the January of 1978, a little old lady from South London called and said that her cat had climbed the tree couldn't get down. So it's January. It's cold. So the army goes out. They attend to the situation. They get a hold of the cat. They bring it down. All is safe. All is rejoicing. This little old lady is so pleased that she says, come inside to all the soldiers who were in this rescue operation. Come inside and have a cup of tea and some crumpets with me. So they go inside. And they have a wonderful time. And at the end of that, they get back in their truck and they pull off and they drove over the cat. So there's a moral of the story here. You need to celebrate your victories while they last. You never know when you're going to have to fight your next battle. <laughs> celebrate your victories while they last. <laughs> For you it would be. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I wanted to prove a point here. Right? <laughs> the next one is to mobilize the laity. Hey, the, the laity. We, we put church into two different categories. There's the ministers and there's the laity. The ministers are the ones that are sweating. The laity are sitting there in the air-conditioned facility. <laughs> It's like the rugby. you got 15 guys, 30 guys that are playing with one another and you've got 30,000 people on the stands. They said that Christianity has become the greatest indoor spectator sport ever. And we need to mobilize the laity. When Moses came to Pharaoh, this is what he said, let my people go. And we need to let the people go. The job, our job as elders, is to train you up and to equip you so that you can do the work of ministry. As you go out to share, to pray for folk, to see healings taking place, to see deliverances taking place, to see salvation taking place and redemption in people's lives. If you wait for ministers, it's not going to happen. It needs to be a whole church situation. And in 1 Corinthians, nowhere else is it greater in emphasis in Paul's writings and in 1 Corinthians 
12, where he talks about the body. Some people want to be more prominent than others. Okay? I'm throwing my hands around. I use my hands a lot. I grab them, grab the mic. I'm playing with my hands a lot. You don't see my feet, although I'm occasionally dancing around. Some of the guys are like walking all the time. You'll see next week, Andrew, he's like, Stand still, Andrew. So we want to be hands. Have you ever seen a foot on a mantelpiece? But I've seen lots of praying hands on a mantelpiece. Even your little emojis, is that what you call it, on your phone. Very seldom you see a foot there, but you see hands clapping, raising, making sounds, making noise. And people want to be hands. But God has called you to be a foot. You won't go very far if you don't have a foot. They fulfill a very important part. If I look at some of the aspects in the body, we see in our ears, there are very important, tiny little bones. And if you didn't have one of them, you wouldn't be able to hear. It's called a, a malleus, the stapes, the incus. And what about those funny things called nostril hairs? I mean, as I get older, I find that hair where I want it to grow stops growing, and where I don't want it to grow, it starts growing. Out of my nostrils and out of my ears. <laughs> yeah, you, you, don't, you want to be cool, so you're constantly trimming. If I didn't trim my nostril, I mean, and I have a great big bush coming out of my nostrils. I mean, it's ugly. But they fulfill a very important part. It's, it's like a filter system that you breathe. They're important, but you can't trim them. And your spit. <laughs> you know, if you didn't have spit in your mouth, you would choke every time you took a piece of bread. These things are all important. There's a lovely story in Acts chapter 9 where uh, um, there's a woman whose name is Dorcas. Dorcas in Greek, Talita in Aramaic, uh, Talitha, if you want to name it differently. And she dies. But she had the gift of helps. And she dies. And the guys are so upset. She wasn't prophetic. She hadn't got the gift of healing. She just had the gift of helps. And the guys were so upset that they called for Peter. He told them, all get out of the room, prayed and raised her from the dead. She sat up, she looked at him, and she, he came out with her, and they all rejoiced. It's a fascinating story. But she, with the gift of helps, all that she did was help people. And I was so upset when she died. And I'm convinced that the redemptive work of Jesus Christ is not going to be done today by charismatic superstars and individual heroes. It's going to be done by a majestically integrated body of Christ. This is the hour when there's not going to be flaming prophets and evangelists. This is the time where the living church and every member is going to be a participator and not a spectator. The healthiest, happiest, holiest churches are lavishly open-handed. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2, Paul is describing the churches in Macedonia and this is what he says. Okay, When the depths 
of your poverty, out of the depths of your poverty, you showed yourselves lavishly open-handed. Philippi was the largest of those churches in Macedonia, and for all intents and purposes, it was the happiest, it was the healthiest, and it was the holiest. Paul, when he wrote the letter to Philippi, he does not have any word of correction to this church. To the other churches, there was lots of correction. This is what I suggest you do. But to the church in Philippi, there was no correction at all. And they were remarkably the most lavishly open-handed uh, church. And I, I want to say to you, let's continue to be generous to the Lord. Now, I'm going to get straight with you guys. Sorry for those of you who are visiting, but please understand, this is family business. <laughs> Jesus talks more about money than any other thing. He talks more about money than love, uh, than faith. He talks about money more than both of those things together. Because he knew that in Luke chapter 16, you cannot serve God and mammon. So, I got uh, an email this past week from our office, and it gives the income uh, for Somerset West. And the income uh, in April was 86,000. In May, it was 103,000. I thought, oh, it's great. We were away overseas in June. We came back in June. It was 64. Big drop. July, 105. Back up. August, 100. September, 89. October, this last month, 93,000. I want to say to you, we've had 13 new folk come into membership over the past five months. We have now a membership of 104 members and 48 children. But for 104 members to be producing 93,000 is not good, especially in this environment of Somerset West. So I thought, let me take a third of that, guys who haven't got work, who haven't got, and let me say 70 folk, if they're getting an income of 20000 which I think is reasonable, some might not be, but there are many that are well over that. And we've got 70 members that are contributing on 20000 that's 2000 rand a month, we should be getting at least 140000 It is very quiet in this place right now. <laughs> The only two people that are making a noise are <laughs> Brian and Carl. Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Giving to the church dignifies the church. The Bible says give it to the storehouse. Don't give it to anyone else. Give it primarily to the storehouse. Out of the abundance of gift giving and, and presents and stuff, you can give to other people, other causes. But the first requirement is to the storehouse. And we need to realize that when we are honoring and obeying God in this area of finance, which is a massive area because your finances can warp your brain. You know, Jesus said you cannot serve God and finances. And so when this area of finances, when we are giving successfully, we need to know that God is going to bless us. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This is Matthew chapter 6. And verse 33, and all of these things shall be added to you. In Galatians 6 and verse 7, whatever a man sows, that will he reap. What are you sowing? 
If you sow sparingly, says the Bible, you will reap sparingly. It is the most fundamental principle in all of the universe in the Bible is the principle of sowing and reaping. Whatever you sow, that will you reap. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, give and it will be given to you. In Malachi chapter 3, it says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and prove me now in this, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Sowing and reaping. You see, came across a story uh, in a French village where a doctor had served faithfully for many, many years. And he was going on retirement. And the, the, the village was so grateful. It was a poor village. And they were so grateful uh, that they wanted to honor him in some way. So they decided amongst themselves that they were all going to contribute some wine to the uh, former, uh, to, to, the, to the doctor. And they would come and they would pour, have a barrel in the center of the town. And they would pour their wine in from all over, all their little farms, and pour the wine into uh, the barrel. And so they did this, and then they came, there came a day when they wanted to honor him, and they took the barrel down to his place, and they gushed over him with words of thanks and gratitude and love. And he was just glowing in his uh, just appreciation of these people. And so they all went home, and he took the barrel, and he opened up the barrel, and he took a cup, and he went, and he sat down, just basking in this wonderful sense of love and appreciation. And he took a sip, and to his utmost surprise, it tasted like water. So he took another sip and it tasted like water. So he went and he, 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 he uh, flushed the, the barrel a little bit and he took some more uh, uh, liquid and he poured it in and it was water. And then it occurred to him what had happened was that the entire village, everybody thought, you know, you know I can't really afford to bring any wine. I'm just going to bring some water and I'm going to pour it in. If it's slightly, slightly diluted, it, it, it won't matter because nobody will notice. But everybody did that. Everybody did that. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Well, that, that the one on Malachi is only on tithing. But, but really, w what I wanted to say here is, is, is that so often we, um, you know, dilute the gospel of wine, the vision of wine, for the water of dilution. You know, and, and please, you know, on Tuesday night, I'm going to address the church planters group. And I'm going to say, you know, if you're wanting to plant a church, and I'll refer to this stuff. If you want to plant a church, you're going to have to make sure that you're leading in this aspect as well. You have to be generous upon generous. So, let's be generous. If we're going to have a church that moves uh, forward with God, we've got the 412. Josh Jen is starting four new churches now. You know, you know the kind of cost involved that's required in planting four churches. We've got huge costs. Durbanville are, are going to put up a huge venue uh, for the Durbanville congregation that's going to become our central place. 
we bought in, buy a property for uh, the, the town congregation. And I mean, you buy anything in the city bowl, it costs huge money. There will come a time when we are full here and we're going to be saying, where do we go? Where do we meet? And Josh Jen will come to our aid. So, guys, you need to be generous.